the Siege of New Hampshire series by Mick Rowland. Book Four, Susan's Bridge. Chapter 20, Detour, Part 2. Susan, Heather, and her kids followed the disorganized flow of people toward the center of town. As the highway wound close to the river, they could see a very tall hill looming up over the low buildings. Susan's map labeled it as Mount Wantasticate. It stood on the New Hampshire side of the river, directly across from the bridge she planned to cross. I wonder, Heather looked around, with all these houses and buildings, you'd think there'd have to be a place for a mom and two kids. Yeah, you'd think, said Susan. Blake looked over his shoulder with an expression that pleaded for rescue. The old woman was beginning to repeat her stories. Heather flashed him an enthusiastic thumbs-up and gestured for him to turn back around. Blake rolled his eyes and turned back, looking deflated. Yeah, but what about you? Heather asked. You've been pretty quiet about where you were trying to get to. She lowered her voice. Just New Hampshire. It must be a nice place to be worth walking all this way. Is your home just over the river? Um, well, no. It's more like a hundred miles more. What? Well, that's crazy. You're going to walk all that way? Well, it must be really nice, said Heather. I think it is, Susan said. She kept her eyes on the mountain as they walked. No matter which way the road turned or which building they passed, the mountain was always visible. It was an unmistakable landmark for where she wanted to be. It's a cute little town, Susan began. There's a cluster of old colonial houses and a tall white church around a little village green that has two Civil War cannons in it. There are farms on the hills, a dairy farm that I helped get the cows for. Horses pull wagons or sleighs to get people wherever they're going. Wow, sounds like a Norman Rockwell painting, said Heather. It kind of looks like that, said Susan. Just beyond that mountain, she thought. But, but it's the people that make it a really great place to live. She told them about the weekly town meetings where anyone could voice their concerns or ask for help. The town market days were fun for talking with people and doing some bartering. She told them about the man with the goat's milk and the fun of trading jars of jam for cans of beans or just looking at people's stuff. She told toned-down stories of how the men defended the town against the gang members, focusing on how bravely they worked together. Does your boyfriend live in that town, too? asked Aaron eagerly. Aaron? scolded Heather. Don't keep asking things like that. Aaron hung her head, but kept her eyes on Susan. She still wanted an answer. There are a lot of special people in that town, Susan said. There's this one guy, Andy. He's not my boyfriend, by the way, who knows all about wild plants that you can eat. He taught me how to make pine fries. Then there's the town leader, Mr. Landers. He's like Santa Claus's younger brother or something. Always jolly. Oh, and old Mr. Hooper? He's always cracking jokes at the meetings. And then there's this nice lady, Margaret, who taught me how to bake bread. 
and Carlos, who could make just about anything out of wood. He built a buckboard wagon for a horse named Peaches to pull. Cool, said Aaron. Sounds awesome. Susan was leaving out the obvious person in her Cheshire memories. Mentioning him only seemed to bring on consternation and unwelcome advice. She was too tired to deal with all that again. It is an awesome place. The people are very friendly, and eager to take in a totally clueless city girl and teach her all kinds of things, protect her from danger. There couldn't have been a better place to end up when this whole outage thing hit. Aaron tilted her head and studied Susan's face. Are you crying? Susan wiped the corner of her eye with the back of her glove. Uh, it's just the cold wind. Uh, it does that to your eyes sometimes. Oh. The old woman had Blake wait for Heather and Susan to catch up so that they could walk side by side. The snow on the road was trampled hard and flat for nearly the full width. Pulling their heavy sled was much easier on the hard pack. Well, hopefully uh, the line won't be too long at the, uh, say, that's new. The old woman pointed to a building that crossed over the highway at its second and third stories. On the roof of the crossover stood three soldiers, one in black. They held rifles at low ready. Beneath the crossover sat a dark green Humvee in the middle of the road. The people trudging up the road had to form two single-file lines to get around it. A man sat in the turret with a large machine gun aimed down the highway. I wonder what that's all about, the old woman said. Susan suspected the Fed's increased security because of Operation Longbow. Two hundred feet or so from the crossover would be Bridge Street. It looked like the authorities were not going to allow any trucks to make a run for this bridge. Two soldiers stood, one on each side of the Humvee, checking that everyone's shoulder had the correct color of paint. Susan hid within her hood as they passed far closer to the soldiers than she liked. The main intersection of the town was crowded, as if it were a block party or a parade. The people lacked the animation of a party. They stood in clusters, a few talking quietly. Most just stood in one place, staring into the distance. Susan caught her breath. Down the gentle hill from the intersection, the bridge rose above the crowds and clutter. Pale green girders stood out against a backdrop of the white, stubbly slopes of the mountain. There it is. It's so close. For a moment she entertained the idea of saying goodbye to Heather and the kids right there. She would leave them all the stuff on the sled. She could travel faster and lighter without it. She would melt into the crowd, make her way down to the bridge. She would wait for a suitable distraction, or create some subterfuge. She would bolt across. She would be home, or at least finally on her way home. Ah, shoots and pickles, said the old woman. Look at that line for the co-op. Yeah, we'll be standing in the cold for hours. I hate that. Susan turned back to see that part of the crowd filling the intersection was actually a meandering line of people with sleds or boxes in their arms. The line led up to the doors of a four-story gray building. Oh, that must be where everyone's taking their contributions, she thought. The people in the line were a little more lively. 
Occasionally, Susan could see a brief smile flash across their fuller faces. Their faces, Susan thought. She glanced around the street and corners. There were actually hundreds of people standing around. Beyond the line of outsiders, in town for the contribution, the others stood still, a forest of human fence posts, behind thin rope barriers. Their faces were thin, with deep-set eyes. Their eyes had that hollow quality. Are they just here to watch? Are outside people their entertainment? Then Susan noticed that most of the fence post people held a small empty bag. Maybe they're waiting for the outside folks' food to get checked in. Seeing Heather and Aaron looking lost, and Blake looking very tired, she realized that she had a duty to get them into some kind of housing before she left. Well, maybe you should uh, put your things at uh, Simone's place first, Susan suggested. Might give the line time to wind down. We could see if there's room for Blake and his family. Uh, that sounds like a good idea, said the old woman. Not like I'm in any kind of hurry since I'm sleeping over. Maybe we can get you a room, eh, my little Blakey? He cringed as she patted him on the top of his head. The woman led the way up a curving street, past the gray co-op building. They came to a sawhorse and a rope across the street. When they tried to walk around the sawhorse, a young man, with black pants and a black coat, rushed over to stand in their way. IDs, he said sternly. He held his hand out, wiggling his fingers impatiently. The old woman handed him her card. The man frowned at it, then thrust it back at her. He grabbed her shoulder and turned it toward him. She had the correct color spot of paint. He waved her on. I.D., the man demanded of Susan. She pointed to Heather, who had fished out the little yellow note. The man seemed taken aback. Oh, what the hell is this? He reached for his sidearm. Susan's heart sank. Something the matter here? asked a middle-aged man in a gray coat and cap. Oh, hello, Mrs. Fields. He addressed the old woman. The man in black held the yellow note out for him to see. They don't have any ID. They handed me this. Susan and Heather exchanged panicky glances. Ah, please, said the old woman with a courtly grace. I said you could call me Adele. I know, Mrs. Field, but this is a small town, he winked. People tend to talk. Oh, you... The woman feigned, concealing a non-existent blush. I forgot my ID, Heather inserted. The soldier at the checkpoint charged me four cans of tuna for, for that temporary pass. He said it would be okay. Temporary pass, thundered the man in black. There's no such thing as temporary passes. Security within the canton will be maintained at all times. All residents and retainers shall present proper identification when required by security officials. That is not proper identification. The gray man studied the note. Now, hold on, Quimby. We do have a Corporal Kaminsky who works the checkpoints. These people have got this week's color on them, too. And they're with me the old woman said. Friends of mine from Vernon. Uh, they're up for the contribution, too. Uh, we're just on our way to Simone's to drop off our overnight things before we take our contributions to the co-op. Susan nodded eagerly. Heather smiled a bit too widely. 
the young man in black sputtered his disapproval. But there's no such regulation permitting temporary passes for retainers. Yeah, well, no, nor is there one prohibiting it, Quimby. Tell you what, the man in gray took out a small pad of paper and began to write. As ward supervisor, I have the statutory authority to grant work permits to retainers. He handed the slip of paper to Heather. I assign you the task of taking care of Mrs. Fields. Any friends of Mrs. Fields are okay by me. But you don't know these people. They could be uh, sneaking food into the canton, snorted the man in gray. We do have to put a stop to that now, don't we? The man in black stomped back to his canvas windbreak along the side of the road. Ah, thank you, Gerald. Ah, you're such a nice man. She patted his forearm. He patted her hand. Oh, careful now, Gerald. People will talk. Her giggle sounded more like a cackle, but it was sincere. Oh, he's such a nice man, she said to Heather and Susan. Uh, they didn't used to have so many of those young whipcracks in town. Uh, got too much regulation and checkpoints like that already. Don't need more of the likes of him. She stabbed a mitten thumb over her shoulder at the young man behind the canvas. Up there's Simone's building, uh, the green one. I'll go in and ask about the room upstairs. Adele motioned for Susan and her group to wait in the street. She stepped up onto the porch, leaned over the wooden railing to tap on the windows. Uh, you who, uh, Sim, it's me again. A pale face appeared briefly between the curtains. Shortly afterward, the heavy wooden front door creaked open. Adele leaned out of the door a minute later, waving for Heather and the kids to come in. Uh, I'll stay out here and watch the sled, Susan said. She offered a thumbs up of encouragement. While they were inside, Susan watched more of the gaunt, fence-post people shuffle slowly down the street toward the center of town. They weren't talking among themselves. Their winter clothes hung on them as if they were walking coat racks. What they wore seemed dingy, rumpled, and in a few places tattered. The few that looked at Susan as they passed stared with a sort of half-attention, as a passenger might glance at road signs. Over the top of old brick buildings downtown arose the mountain. New Hampshire was watching. The front door creaked, bringing Susan's thoughts back to the here and now. She untied the tarp on the sled and lifted out Heather's backpack. She held it out for Heather to take. I can help you carry up your stuff, Susan said. Heather kept her hands in her pockets and looked at the ground. Yeah, well, um, about that. What? They wouldn't let you stay up there? Oh, they would, but, uh... But what? Uh, this used to be an old rooming house, Heather began. It was converted into apartments back in the 80s, yeah, but the apartments were essentially still clusters of two and three old single rooms. Now the Canton people converted it back into singles. Simone has one of the smaller rooms on the first floor because she's old. The couple on the third floor had their apartment turned into two rooms. I could tell they were still pretty angry about that. They were willing to rent the second room to us. Oh, well, that's good then, right? Uh, why does everyone look so somber? Susan asked. They wanted a third of our food ration. Huh? What food ration? 
Heather stepped closer so she could talk more freely. If we stay in the canton, every person gets a daily ration from the neighborhood soup kitchen. The couple said we could stay in their second room if we'd give them a third, basically my or Blake's portion. The three of us would have to share two rooms. Oh, that doesn't sound all that good. No, and Adele said they cut the rations already. Oh, okay, never mind about them. She mentioned a converted mill building. Uh, it's not just that, Heather said quietly. Have you looked around here? Oh, kind of. I was doing that while you were inside. I mean, all the guards and checking for IDs? And have you looked at the people who live here? She whispered the last statement as a group of four fence posts shuffled slowly past. It's like they're only half alive. Yeah, noticed that. Then what are you going to do? Well, we took a vote. Heather put one arm around Blake, the other around Aaron. We've decided that we want to come to New Hampshire with you. Aaron nodded enthusiastically with a wide smile and bright eyes. Blake nodded, but with a guilty look. Susan stood stunned for a moment. All of her plans were being erased off the chalkboard. Will you take us? Heather asked. Please? Aaron begged. Blake avoided eye contact. Oh, I'm sorry, I was... That I... He hung his head. I won't be like that anymore. You can keep my dad's rifle. I don't want your dad's rifle, but are you guys sure? Susan wasn't sure if she was trying to caution them or talk them out of it. it it's over a hundred miles to walk. That could be a week of sleeping in the snow, maybe more. We know. We talked about that. We want what you had. Susan leaned on her walking stick and let out a big sigh. She barely had any kind of a plan for just herself making the journey. She had put zero hours into planning how to travel with three more. Regardless, she knew the first step of any plan had to be getting across the bridge. She would just have to figure things out as they went. What do we do next? Heather asked. Well, to start with, one of you lean in and tell Adele that we're going to go stand in line at the co-op. She can join us there later. We'll keep going down to the bridge. And then? Just go tell Adele, okay? Susan didn't have a next step to tell them. They dragged the sled back down to the center of town. They passed the crowds of both fence posts and retainers standing in line. Susan tried to adopt a sort of casual, touristy pace. She wandered from one side of the street to the other, looking at buildings or nothing in particular as they drew closer to the bridge. Several men, apparently retainers, as they had fuller faces and life in their eyes, were interacting with a mixed group of soldiers standing beside a restaurant at the end of the bridge. Susan positioned them as if they were gawkers to whatever was going on. Several Jersey barriers sat in a line across the bridge's road deck. No one was going to drive across that bridge. On the left side, however, was a pedestrian sidewalk. It was not blocked. The green pipe railings arched over the river, landing on an island that was the dry edge of New Hampshire. What's the plan? Heather asked out of the corner of her mouth. Keep acting casual, Susan answered back. Smile, look around, 
but not at the bridge. When I think they're all busy looking at something else, I'll cough a little. When I do, Aaron, you and Blake take off running across that bridge. Heather, you follow them. I'll run behind, pulling the sled. Well, what if they start shooting? That's why I'm in the back. But I'm really banking on the notion that they won't shoot at women and children. So, no matter what, just keep running. Here's a map that I drew that shows how to get there. You've seen how to make winter camps. You have stuff in your backpacks. You can do it. If I, uh, don't... You can do it. All three of them nodded with serious expressions. Susan watched as the men unloaded boxes from a toboggan. Soldiers took the boxes inside the red wooden building. Susan counted six soldiers. Two were inside. Of the four remaining, two were busy talking with the men. The other two looked distracted. She and her group sidestepped a little closer to the pipe railing. One of the distracted soldiers looked up and studied them. Susan smiled and looked around. When the soldier looked back at the toboggan, Susan had her group take a half-step closer still. The soldier noticed. He stopped leaning against the building. He stood and stared. His head turned sideways slightly, like a dog that didn't understand a command. He didn't have either hand on a weapon. Aaron and Blake stood with feet wide apart, knees bent slightly. They were coiled springs, ready to leap. The soldier looked to one of his companions to call his attention to the odd people at the end of the bridge. It wasn't the ideal moment Susan had imagined, but it might be as good as it ever got. They could be thirty feet down the walkway before they could bring any weapon to bear. Susan swallowed hard and took in a deep breath to make her signal cough. As Susan is about to have Heather and her kids run across the bridge, her assumption is that the soldiers wouldn't shoot at women and children. Was that a naive assumption? There is an expectation that soldiers, and to some extent law enforcement personnel, would abide by some Geneva Convention rules and not hurt innocent civilians. In practical terms, though, that line of who's innocent and who isn't gets blurry really fast. The human inclination to other people is an age-old problem. Simply regarding some other group as lesser makes it easier to discriminate against them, abuse, or take advantage of them. Sometimes it's racial, assuming that your race are the proper people and the other races are somehow lesser. It could be economic status, like the rich Leona Helmsley habitually berating and abusing her employees. An attitude that proper people are wealthy. The non-wealthy, in this case Leona's employees, were obviously just crude working-class droobs. Otherwise they'd be rich like her. This amounted to her being a jerk, basically, but it's still othering. Where things take a darker turn is when the others get painted as enemies who can harm the proper people. Then, othering isn't just an excuse to be a jerk, but an excuse to be physically abusive. If the occupying forces of a country, for instance, regard the native civilians as all insurgents or collaborators or at least sympathizers, then retribution or preemptive violence gets inserted into how the occupiers act. The civilians get painted as guilty of crimes against the proper people and therefore no longer innocent, 
so abusing them is okay. They had it coming, and such. As an historical example, that othering dynamic was in play in the 1930s when Stalin's government portrayed the kulaks, the better-off farmers, in Ukraine as enemies of the poor and working classes. Even the label of kulak was pejorative. It means tight-fisted. The communists preached that the successful farmers refused to share their wealth with the poor. If you were a hungry factory worker, it was those cruel kulaks who were starving your children. This othering of Ukrainian farmers made it easier for the proletariat mobs to confiscate their farms and help ship them off to labor camps, where hundreds of thousands of them died. And we haven't outgrown that tendency to other each other. Not long ago, masked individuals would physically assault someone who wasn't wearing a mask. The unmasked were described as heartless spreaders of disease. They were trying to kill grandma. So beating them up was perfectly reasonable. Another manifestation of othering is what they call contempt of cop. This happens when an overzealous law enforcement officer feels that their detainee has become disrespectful. That perceived disrespect puts the detainee in the other category, a hostile criminal who is a danger to cops. This, in the offended cop's mind, justifies abusive and excessive force. They had it coming. Tyrannical regimes use the othering as a tool. They encourage their loyalists to regard the non-compliant as traitors, criminals, and enemies. With that sort of view, it's not hard to abuse or even kill those who are deemed insufficiently compliant, even women and children. I hinted at that dynamic with the banter between the two soldiers who had captured Susan earlier in the story. They justified, in their own minds, the abuse they intended to commit on the grounds that anyone caught outside of the cantons was, by choice, a criminal and barely more than an animal, with no rights. Would the soldiers guarding the bridge in Brattleboro see Susan and her group as innocent women and children, or would they see them as enemies of the state to stop at any cost? Thanks to those of you who sent in a question for the upcoming Q&A episode. There weren't too many of you, though. In case you were reluctant to send me an email at mick at mick com, I created an anonymous online survey where you could type in your question. And there's another bonus question. Which character would you like to hear more about in future stories? While Book 6 is well underway, a popular character could be woven in. And then there's Books 7 and 8, which are in outline form, so it'd be easier to give a favored character a little more ink. The link for the survey is in the show notes. I'll also put a link to it in a post on my Buy Me a Coffee page. No coffee purchase required, but, you know, if you wanted to, I wouldn't mind. Check out the Posts tab to find it. Thanks in advance for your input.